you would go ahead and get your Bibles and go to John chapter 4. We're going to pick up in our study that we've uh, been taking a break uh, from for a couple of weeks now. There's a famous display of Egyptian art in the Brooklyn Museum, and uh, it's full of statues, it's full of paintings and inscriptions and, and all kinds of really, thing, uh, really cool things, but it's actually become famous for this really unique aspect and, and, uh, of the art, and that's the fact that on many of the paintings and on many of the carvings and on many of the sculptures, the figures have been vandalized. It's so much of an eyesore that the number one question the curator gets from visitors year in and year out is, why are all the statues' noses broken? So many of them are broken, and I have some pictures that we'll just kind of scroll through a little bit, but historians and archaeologists and anthropologists have written extensively on this phenomenon in Egyptian art, and last year CNN published an article about it, which is what I'm going to be referencing a ton here. It's really interesting, though, because while on the surface, you just, you know, you might think, well, it's an old statue, and noses kind of hang off, <laughs> you know, it's so, like, whenever you go to the beach, like, what, what gets more sunburned than anything? It's your nose, because it's just out there, so it would kind of make sense that if they're buried underground for thousands of years, like the nose is going to be what falls off. But then you have these two-dimensional uh, pieces of art that aren't statues. They don't have things hanging off. And even on these um, pieces, the noses and the faces have been mutilated. And what historians have realized is that these aren't just hack jobs. They're not accidents. They're not random. They're not coincidences. They're not caused by time and nature. They were actually well-planned, well-orchestrated acts of political, uh, I guess, motive, and then even later on religious, which we'll see. But they were acts of iconoclasm, and they were, they were carried out by well-skilled laborers. You see, in the ancient world, the Egyptians ascribed important powers to images and statues of humans and gods. They actually believed that a part of the deceased human being's soul could inhabit the statue ascribed to it. They even believed that the essence of a god would take residence in the image that was created to represent it. Uh, and so they had all of these ritual purposes, and people would go into temples, and they would go into these tombs with food and wine and treasure and ointments, and they would lay them at the statue's base so that they can make sacrifices and make offerings so that if it was a dead person, they would bring food so that on the other side, the person would have food in whatever life that person was living. Or if it was a god, they would bring all of this treasure and all of these sacrifices so that the god would give them what they really wanted. And what we've seen over the last few months as we've been going through the Gospel of John and we've been talking about the fullest is the fact that what every single one of us want is to live the good life. We all want happiness and prosperity and health or whatever it is that we think will lead to thriving. And so all of these people in the ancient world were going to statues so that they could get the good life. And then this is where it's really fascinating. This is where the hacked noses comes into play. What historians have found and uh, Ryan, I think, I think they've seen enough of the mutilated faces, so thank you. Um, what historians have <laughs> I told him to just keep scrolling, and I'm like, I don't know, that's a little bit much. Um, what historians have found is that between the first century and the third century, as Christianity was sweeping the known world and it was making its way into Africa, is that more and more people 
were hearing the gospel for the first time. They were, they were encountering truth for the first time. They were finding Jesus and his life for the first time. And they realized that all of these statues were empty. And they couldn't do what they had promised to do. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Since they all believed that these statues represented gods or spirits or dead people or whatever, and that the essence of those people were there, they believed that if they could mutilate a part of that statue, the essence of the being that that part represented would be neutralized or the power would be dismantled. So if you went to a statue or a painting and you scratched out the eyes, then the god would no longer be able to see. Or if you went to the statue and you, you cut off their ears, then the god would no longer be able to hear. But if you cut off their noses, then the gods on the other side would no longer be able to breathe. And as a result, they would be destroyed. And so in the first and third century, all of these iconoclasts were just going to these temples and these tombs, and they're well-skilled, and they've got their chisel, and they've got their hammer, and they've got the truth. And they essentially wanted to go back to all of those empty idols and cut the life out of them. So they cut off all their noses, and now we have museums filled with them. Now here's the thing. You might look at that ancient culture and think that sounds ridiculous. I mean, who in the world would ever take food to a face carved on a rock and believe that somehow they were going to get the good life out of it? You would never go to a temple and pray to a sculpture thinking that it might satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. I would never do that. But what's so important for us to understand and what we've been talking about for the last few months is that we might not go to statues to give us hope and joy and peace but we are all going somewhere, and we're all making sacrifices along the way. A couple of years ago, the Washington Post published an article about millennials, which many of you are. And, and, and the article is entitled, An Entire Generation is Losing Hope, Enter the Witch. And it's written by Christine Emba. She's a millennial. Here's a quote. The growing interest in witches, which is growing, and, and witchcraft speaks to a uniquely unsettled moment in U.S. history. Do you feel that? You feel the unsettledness of our moment in history? An unprecedented loss of hope felt by an entire generation. Absent anything else to hold on to, we are reaching into the dark. Now, again, maybe you're not one of the hundreds of thousands of, of people who are reaching into the dark, which is why you're in a 70-year-old Baptist church building right now. But you're reaching somewhere. Maybe you're one of the billions of people that's reaching into that old trio that has defined humanity's cravings for millennia, money, sex, and power. Maybe you're one of the billions of people that is getting your identity from your group of friends. That's getting your purpose from your climb up the corporate ladder. Maybe you're one of the billions of people that is looking for security in the love of a spouse. It doesn't matter what it is, we're all going somewhere in our search for the good life. But what we've seen over and over again as we've been looking at this gospel is that if we're going to anything 
or anyone other than the author of life, we will never find it. Today we're going to meet a woman who had been doing just that. She wasn't going to statues. She was going to men. She was going to marriage after marriage after marriage after marriage and then just back to men because marriage wasn't working out until Jesus, the ultimate iconoclast, lovingly and graciously cut off the nose of her God and showed her a better way. Look at John chapter 4 with me and look at this amazing conversation. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although he himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. We're going to talk about that at the very end in like 30 or 40 minutes, depending on how fast we go. So just remember that. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who it was who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, and his sons did as well, and so did his livestock. And so Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, zoe, life to the fullest, now and forevermore. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water again. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband because you have had five husbands and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Let's stop there for a minute. Now, there are a few really important things that I want to show you that we need to see in this conversation. And in order for us to get the weight of them, we need to know who we are going into this story, who we are in this story. And, and if it's not obvious yet, we're the woman, okay? We, we're the woman who's longing and aching and desperate for satisfaction. That's who we are in the story. So everything she wants in life, we want in life. Everything she's longing and hoping for, we're longing and hoping for as well. And so everything that Jesus shows her and everything that Jesus says to her, he wants to show and say to you and to me as well today. And there are three things specifically that I want to show you today. The first is precious. Jesus shows her the compassion of a friend. Now on the surface, this whole conversation might not look and seem un. Out of the ordinary, it might not seem unique or special. It might look uneventful. But when you understand a little bit about the context, you see it's the exact opposite. In fact, Jesus had every reason not to talk to this lady. And you can tell that she was totally caught off guard by the fact that he was talking to her. She's shocked by it. That's what all the parenthetical statements are about, which we're going to look at. For starters, she was a Samaritan. 
and, and, and we get a little bit about racism because we have a terrible history of racism as a country. We're still trying to get over it. Um, it's a process, and it's long, and it's hard. But could you imagine being an architect? Some of you are architects. Could you imagine being an architect 50, 60 years ago? And constructing, bu- constructing buildings with the goal in mind of keeping blacks and whites as separate as possible. Like, you're the architect. You've got to design a building that's got two bathrooms and two water fountains and separate entrances so that the whites, quote-unquote, can go in this one and use this and the coloreds can go in this one and do this. That was your job 50 years ago. And we can look back on that. It wasn't that long ago, and we can know something about racism. But what we know of racism doesn't come close to what was going on in the first century between Jews and Samaritans. Uh, honestly, guys, we, we don't have anything that compares to it here and now. And it all goes back to oh, uh, 700 years before these events were taking place. The Assyrians came in and they conquered Israel, the Babylonian Empire. You, know, you remember this story in ancient history. They conquered Israel and they took a bunch of captives with them. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you've heard stories of Daniel and the lion's den. That's happening in, in the Babylonian captivity. You've heard stories of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and, and the fiery furnace. They're, they have been taken into captivity. But what the Assyrians did is they didn't take everyone. They left some of the Israelites behind. Maybe they were too weak to travel. Maybe they were too old. Maybe they were too young. And so this remnant stayed, and some of them intermarried with this group of people called the Canaanites. And again, if you're not familiar with with Bible history, the Canaanites were the people that inhabited the land that God had told Israel to wipe out. They were pagans. Uh, They killed their babies uh, for sacrifices. Um, They were uh, a crazy and brutal people that God wanted out of the promised land. And the Israelites not only didn't wipe them out, but then they started marrying them. So they married them during this time, and they created this new tribe. This tribe was what they called half-blooded traitors, and they were called the Samaritans. And they took some of the Jewish religion, and they took some of the pagan religion, and they kind of came up with their own religion. And they, they wanted to, to be a part of Israel, but when Nehemiah and Ezra went to rebuild the temple, and they went to rebuild um, the city, the Samaritans came and they said, hey, we want to help you. And, and they tried to help. And the Israelites were like, no, you can't help us. You've got no part of us. You are tainted in your blood. And so what they did was they went to Mount Gerizim. And they built a temple on Mount Gerizim. And they started their own worship and their own rituals and their own sacrifices there. And they hated each other. This has been going on for 700 years. The Mishnah, which is kind of the law for the Israelites, stated that Samaritans were unclean from the cradle. And the Jews actually believed that if they talked to a Samaritan, they would catch their disease and be defiled. So they wouldn't even talk to him. They wouldn't even go through Samaria, which again, just keep that in mind, Jesus had to go through Samaria. That's what's going on here. In Luke 9, James and John, John is the author of this gospel we're reading. James and John ask Jesus to call fire down from heaven and destroy the Samaritans. We know nothing of this racism. 
And so look at how shocked she is that he's talking to her and asking her for a drink. Verse 9 says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? Because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She's shocked. But on top of that, she wasn't just a Samaritan. She was a sinner and a moral outcast. Verse 6 tells us that she was there at the sixth hour, which would have been noon during that day and time. And a lot of scholars have pointed out the fact that women do not go to the well at noon. They, They would go to the well to get their water for the day early in the morning when it was cool so that they could have water for cooking and cleaning throughout the day. So all of the women of her village go and get water in the morning. And then in the heat of the day, when no one else will be there, she goes to get her water. You guys know what this is like. You've got some drama with someone. Maybe uh, you've had a falling out with a friend or a family member. Maybe someone has offended you. And the last thing you want to do is have like an awkward confrontational um, encounter. So maybe you know they go to this cafe all the time, so you go to a different cafe because you don't want to bump into each other. Um, Maybe you know that they show up to work like at 9 on the dot, so you show up at 8.30 just so there's no chance that you'll have to walk in together and ride the elevator together. You know what I'm talking about. Unfortunately, we've all experienced that kind of drama. That's what's going on with this woman, except it's not with one or two people. It's with the women of the village. It's all of them. She is on her sixth man at this point, and you had better believe that with every divorce, And every new marriage and every new fling in between, she ostracized herself from the women in her village a little bit more. All of those sisters and all of those moms and all of those cousins. And now she is a total pariah. Marginalized, outcast in a society of pariahs and outcasts. So when Jesus talks to her, it is shocking and scandalous because he's breaking every social convention ever. Not to mention the fact that she's a woman and men didn't talk to women at that time. Tim Keller put it this way in his book, Encounters with Jesus, which I would encourage you to read. He, he talks a whole chapter about this encounter. When Jesus begins to speak to her, he is deliberately reaching across almost every significant barrier that people can put up between themselves. In this case, a racial barrier a cultural barrier, a gender barrier, and a moral barrier in every convention of the time that he, a religious Jewish male, should have nothing whatsoever to do with her. But he doesn't care. Because that's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus always does. He is the friend of sinners. And that was meant to be an insult to him, by the way. But he liked that name. He actually called himself that later on. He was the champion of the down and outs. He was the lover of the ones that everyone else cast aside. So when everyone else gave the cold shoulder, he gave kindness. When everyone else showed indifference, he showed intentionality. When everyone else was cruel and calloused, his heart burned with compassion. Even when else... When no one else sees anything lovely, he reaches across the divide and he loves. That's true for you, and that's true for me. 
So this simple act of striking up a conversation with this woman was an act of incredible kindness. It was an act of incredible compassion. And it was one that she probably hadn't experienced for years. But he doesn't just show her compassion. He actually confronts her over her sin, which is really compassionate. He shows her the emptiness of her idolatry. That's the second thing that I want you to see. Jesus shows her the emptiness of her idolatry. He doesn't just show compassion and mercy and kindness by talking to someone, which is usually where we want to stop. (laughs) We're really good at showing compassion by talking to people and engaging and listening and being intentional and then just hugging them and saying, go and be blessed without ever talking about anything that matters. But Jesus doesn't stop with the water. He doesn't stop with the conversation. He shows her compassion by calling her out for her idolatry. Look back at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. (laughs) What an interesting thing to say to a woman that you have just met. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said, I know. That's why I brought it up. (laughs) You're right. You're right in saying I have no husband. You've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. This is like the rudest thing you could ever say to a woman. This is the the rudest thing you could ever bring up. What in the world, Jesus? Just talk about water. Just be kind. Just be compassionate. You don't bring that kind of stuff up. Her love life is her business, right? What she does in, in the privacy of her home is between her and whoever. Jesus has no right to bring that up. Yet he does. This is the most compassionate thing that he could do for her in that moment. Because what he was actually doing was showing her the root of her brokenness. Showing her the root of her brokenness and the root of her problem. She was thirsty for God. But she was searching for identity and hope and satisfaction and everything but him. If only I could get that guy to love me. If only I could find the perfect marriage with the perfect guy and find the perfect love, then I'd be satisfied. But the problem is that there aren't any perfect marriages. There, I know this is going to shock you, but there aren't any perfect guys out there. There aren't any perfect loves apart from the love of God. So Jesus says, if you drink from those waters, you're going to be thirsty again. But if you drink from my water, you'll never thirst. Now, at first, she doesn't get it. She's thinking hyper-literally. She's thinking about H2O, water. And and, and she's like, well, I love the prospect of never being thirsty again. I won't have to do this whole well thing at noon. You know, I can avoid the women, and I can avoid the, the well altogether. How do I get this water? But Jesus isn't talking about H2O. He's talking about living water, which was an idea that went all the way back to the days of the prophets. Look at Jeremiah 2 with me, and I'll show you what I mean. I have it on the screen. Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That phrase living water comes from the Hebrew, Hebrew phrase, mayim kayim. I want you to try to say that. Say, mayim kayim. 
Well done. You know Hebrew now. Um, and it's not, it's not describing the kind of water that comes from a tap or a well. Ma'im Kaim was talking about the kind of water that sprang up out of a fountain or that bubbled up from a brook or that gushed out of a river or that poured down from the clouds. It was fresh and it was untainted and it was pure and it was active. They would actually use this phrase, Ma'im Kaim, to try to describe what it was like to encounter the presence of the living God. And this is where it gets really fascinating. An experience of the presence of the living God was Ma'im Kaim, living water. It was rich and refreshing and healing and transformative, like coming to a fresh source of water in a barren wasteland on a dry and weary day, an encounter with God that was so real and so tangible and so glorious that it felt like you were standing on the edge of heaven. That was Ma'im Kaim. It was like living water. And when you drink of that water and when you find your identity and your hope and your peace in him, there's nothing more refreshing than that. You will never thirst again. And so going back to Jeremiah 2, God tells his people, I have this against you. You have traded Mayim Kaim. You have traded my presence and the joy of encountering me for something else. You've carved out cisterns and you've tried to fill them with some other water. You, you've carved faces into rocks. You, you ran after money and sex and power and fame and relationships and all kinds of other gods. He says your cisterns are broken. They, they have a bunch of holes in them and you're trying to, to fill them and you're making all of these sacrifices thinking that you're going to come back and be able to drink but the water's just gushing out of the holes. They're empty. They promise to fill us up. They promise to satisfy us, but they never do. Um, there, a lot of philosophers um, have talked about this idea, of, especially postmodern philosophers, have talked about this idea of, of hyperreality. Have you heard of hyperreality? Hyperreality is basically this idea that we live in a world of images and symbols that uh, represent what is true about life. Uh, but the problem is that the symbols appear more attractive than the reality that they're representing. The, the image or the visual, visual isn't the true representation of what's actually going on. And we see hyper-reality all over the place. For example, the playoffs are going on this weekend for the NFL, um, if you like that sort of thing. And if your team is in it, you are super excited right now. You've got a dog in the fight. You got bragging rights for, you know, the next year. You're, you're going to hopefully make it to the conference finals today and then ultimately the, the Super Bowl. If you don't have a team or you just don't really care about football but it's a cultural thing and you got to do this, all you have to look forward to for the next couple of weekends are commercials. Commercials are the epitome of hyper-reality. For example, uh, especially during the Super Bowl, we're going to see countless beer commercials. Now, if you know anything about beer commercials, there's usually a template. If they're not sim you know, simple and funny and kind of crazy, it's usually a bunch of young, super attractive, chiseled, like 20-year-old somethings playing volleyball on the beach. And they've got chiseled abs and they have perfect bodies. And it is, it is putting a vision before us that this is what beer does. 
and, and this is the reality of the party. And, 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 and it's amazing, and you look amazing, and everyone is happy. But the ironic thing about this ad and these commercials is the fact that the reason those people are chiseled and the reason that they're so happy is because they don't drink a lot of beer. <laughs> and that's, that's the truth, and that's hyper-reality. That this visual is saying, if you do this, and if you go to this, and if you run to this, then this is what you're going to find. And, and so we do that. We're like, okay, sweet. And then you get there and you're like, why? Why is this? Why am I growing? And we just do. It's hyper-reality. Look at this quote from Philip Yancey. It says, a society that denies the supernatural usually ends up elevating the natural to supernatural status. Annie Dillard tells of experiments in which entomologists entice male butterflies with a painted cardboard replica larger and more beautiful and more enticing than the females of their species. Oh, do I not have this quote? I'm so sorry, guys. All right, well, just imagine this now. Giant cardboard butterflies created by scientists to lure male butterflies. Excited, the male butterfly goes after this piece of cardboard again and again, over and over, while nearby, the real and living female butterfly opens and closes her wings in vain. And if, if that's not a picture of our culture, I don't know what is. That we're presented with these images of the good life, if you want to prosper, if you want to live well, and if you want to thrive, go after this. But it's nothing more than a piece of cardboard and the real things over there trying to get our attention, drawing us, urging us, just come to me, and you're going to find what you're looking for, and it's all in vain. We never see it. We live in a world full of cardboard butterflies. We are bombarded with advertisements and images and symbols that look so beautiful and so enticing. Come to me and satiate the longings of your soul. Come to me and find happiness and joy. This is the path to pleasure. So we go over and we go over and we go over again, hoping that it will do what it promises, only to find that we're more discontent than ever before. Why isn't this cardboard doing it for us? Why do we have to keep going back only to never be filled? It's hyper-reality. It's not real. It is a broken cistern, a bucket with a ton of holes in it, spilling out the water that we're trying to drink. And that's what the woman had done with all of her husbands. That's what you and I have done in countless ways as well. So Jesus stands up and he says, listen, if you drink from those waters, you're going to be thirsty again. You're going to be hungry again. You're going to ache, and your, your longing and your pain aren't going to go away. But if you would just come to me, I'm going to put living water inside of you, which again, Mayim Kaim, I'm going to put the presence of God inside of you. And it's going to spring up like water gushing out of you. So much so that no matter what happens around you in any of your circumstances, you will be satisfied. 
The only thing that can satisfy the longings of your soul is God. So Jesus confronts her idolatry and he shows her the emptiness of it so that he can finally, third, show her the way back to God. Look again at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And this is kind of a weird segue here. Um, but she, she's so shocked that he knows everything about her that she immediately asks him one of the most important theological questions of the day. And that was, who has access to God? Is it the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim where our temple is that we built? Or is it the Israelites in Jerusalem in the temple that they built? Who has access to God? Who's right? And so Jesus responds with this incredible and shocking statement where essentially he says, and I'm going to sum it up. I put it on the screen so you can read it. But just to sum it up, the time is coming when there will be no need for a physical temple in order to have access to God. That's what this whole conversation is about. And so she's so overwhelmed with it. She says, wow, I, I know that the Messiah is coming. I know he who is called Christ is on his way. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus finally reveals his identity in verse 26. He says, I who speak to you am he. I'm the, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah come from God to tell you all things about life. This is the climax of the whole conversation, guys. This is what it's all working towards. This is what the entire story is about. It's like the very end of the Odyssey for all of you, like um, Homer fans. Uh, with he, he wrote it, right? Is that funny? Okay. <laughs> Sometimes I say the wrong thing, and your laughter lets me know that. Um, <laughs> if you know anything about the story, Odysseus has been gone forever, and Penelope, his poor wife, has had her house taken over by all these evil men, and they're stealing the food, and they're harassing her, and they're, like, going to force her to marry one of them, and it's awful. And Odysseus finally gets back after years and years and years journeying, and he comes back disguised as a beggar, and he's going to take his revenge out. And the way that the hero reveals his identity is the climax of the entire story. And he goes to his friends and he shows them a scar on his foot that only Odysseus had. It was so unique. And they say, all right, we're going to fight with you. And then there's this competition. And it's, again, it's the climax of the whole story. Who can string the mighty bow of, of Odysseus? No one can do it. Everyone tries, but it's too hard. And then this, this beggar walks up to the bow, who is Odysseus, and he strings it with ease. It's the easiest thing in the world. And then he picks it up, and he shoots an arrow with one try through 12 axe handles. And everyone knows immediately, uh-oh, Odysseus is back. Because he's the only one who could do that. And then he takes his revenge. That's what Jesus is doing here in this story. It's the climax. It's this revelation. He's been veiled. He's just been talking to this woman at the well. She has no idea who he is. And finally, he pulls the veil back and he reveals who he is by saying this really profound statement. Ego eimi. Ego eimi in the Greek is what we have translated, I am he. There's no he in the Greek. It's literally, I am. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that the prophets were always looking, looking forward to the day when I am would come. This is how God introduced himself to Moses in the burning bush. He said, who, who should I say sent me when they ask, you know, whose authority do I come with? And he says, I am sent you. 
It's the name of God. Jesus is saying, ego e me. And he pulls the veil back and she sees for the first time, this is God. Look at Isaiah 52, 6. Hopefully I put this in the slides. This is a prophecy about the Messiah who is coming. My people will know my name. In that day, they will know that it is I who speak. Ego me. They're going to know my name on that day. My name is I am. And now he's fulfilling this prophecy to this Samaritan woman at the well. The point is clear. His invitation to living water is an invitation to himself. His invitation into these satisfying waters of the good life is an invitation into the presence of God, and he is the access point. Not a temple on Mount Gerizim, not a temple in Jerusalem. He is the new temple. And if you want the good life, you've got to go through him. He is my Enkidu. Now, this is the really beautiful thing. I told you we were going to come back to this. It's the fact that this encounter was not random. This encounter was not accidental, and it wasn't a coincidence. Check this out. God had planned the entire thing. God had planned it from the very beginning, and it was all a part of his sovereign pursuit of this outcast, adulterous woman. Verse 4 tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem. But the truth is that there were actually three different routes to Jerusalem. And the Jews never went through Samaria, ever. They didn't want to be defiled by them. They would literally add two days extra to their journey so that they could go around Samaria. The fact that Jesus had to go through Samaria points to an appointment he had to keep. Then in verse 6, he positions himself on the well. Now, our English translations say beside the well, but in the Greek, it is literally on the well. <laughs> he, he sits on the well, so conspicuous, so unavoidable. So anyone who's coming to that well at noon cannot get water without getting past this guy who just so happens to be sitting on the well. He knows he's going to talk to her because he's got an appointment to keep. Then look at verse 8. Verse 8 tells us that he'd sent his disciples into the city to get some food. Because I guarantee if his disciples were there, they wouldn't have been able to talk. They wouldn't have been able to talk without judgment. That's for sure. They would have been interrupting. They would have been pulling on his coat. Hey, why are you talking to this Samaritan? Hey, why are you talking to this woman? Hey, do you know anything about her? Like, get out of here. You're going to ruin your reputation as a teacher. You're going to ruin your reputation as a holy man of Israel. You're going to ruin your, your reputation as the Messiah. And so he sends them to go get food so that he will be alone at the well because he's got an appointment to keep. It's not a coincidence. Everything about this encounter had been planned by God so that Jesus could meet this broken and empty and despised woman and offer her Zoe, life, and life to the fullest. The same thing is true of every single one of us today. The fact that you are here in this room is not random. It's not a coincidence. Maybe you've been coming here for months. It's not by chance. 
the fact that you have been chasing the good life and everything under the sun only to come here today and be invited by the author of life into his life is not an accident. You might think it's because you just decided to come today. You might think you came for the coffee. You might think you came for friends. But this event was planned by a sovereign God so that you could hear an invitation into his life and be satisfied forever. It's a sovereign and gracious and compassionate pursuit of you. And so today he's calling us to turn from our cardboard butterflies. He's calling us to turn from our faces carved on statues and everything else that's leaving us empty and find satisfaction in him. Drink and never be thirsty again.